Georgie? The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Come with me if you want to live. So delighted to be joined on the show today uh, by the director of the recent Fright Fest hit, The Harbinger, Andy Mitten. Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. Thanks very much for joining me. Um, Thanks for having me. Just a brief outset. I've, I've kind of spoke to you out with this um, on Twitter yeah. and told you my love for this film. It is fantastic. Um, and also your previous, which I found because of this, The Witch in the Window, so I'll get that out of the way nice and early, but both both really great horror movies. Um, so coming up with the idea for The Harbinger, um, and also if there's any accent issues, just let me know <laughs> if I speak too quick. That's then. great. Um, so coming up with uh, the idea for The Harbinger, was it something developed during the pandemic, or was that a process that kind of mutated as it went it, it was developed during the pandemic it came mm. out really inspired um the summer of 2020 there was another film we were hoping to shoot that summer that wasn't wasn't going to be possible um okay so i yeah i started you know we we were we we're not in new york but we were close to new york we were in new england it was a it was a bad place to be at that mm. time in the early days so that we were swimming in the existential dread of that summer and yeah. um this just became a way to sort of uh, process. I, I think those feelings, you know, I, I I talked with my producing partner, Richard King, about like, is it a good idea or a bad idea to sort of take this on? And we figured yeah. there's a debate, obviously. I think there's still a debate, but um, but that horror is a great place to, to, to look at something to process what's going on in the present. It gives you a little bit of a lens, um, yeah. a little bit of a cushion between you and the, and the, and the hard truth. Mm-hmm. And uh and so, yeah, we're like, we'll give it a try. And, and, and this thing flew out of me and um, really quick, I had a draft in like uh, August of 2020 and we were shooting cool. in February. So right, just yeah. a few months later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just what you were touching on there, obviously with it being a, a pandemic horror and you had to have the a sort of quite a difficult discussion about whether to move forward with it. Um, did you have any worries about, a potential, not necessarily a backlash, because I think we're seeing now more of a pandemic-based horror starting to make a bit of a breakthrough. People, not we're not moving away from the pandemic, but it certainly calmed down, and certainly, certainly in the media and things like that. Was it really difficult to push through with that one? Were you worried about any sort of negative backlash at all? Yeah, I was. I thought, for me, the distinction was, if I just go and try and write about it on the nose, uh, then I would even backlash against myself in that instance. Like that was never the goal. The goal was like, I had a story idea and uh, the idea could exist in another time, in another context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like any theme in any setting you look for as a storyteller, this fueled the story. So yeah. I just kept thinking of it that way. It's the fuel running into the story. Uh, if it ever just becomes the heart of the story, um, I'm wagging the dog at that point. I have a problem at that point. So, 
we just try, you know, I tried to keep that balance. I had everyone around me trying to keep that balance and I do what I always do. I, I check in with like the 12 year old version of myself who yeah. fell in love with movies and the reason we do it and make sure that guy's happy too. And, uh, you know, took a swing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's paid off massively. Um, so with the, the kind of the context of the movie with the Harbinger being this demon that essentially erases you from existence, you erases your your being, the memories that people have of you. An interesting the thing that I certainly found from it is it kind of touching on the way that during the pandemic and with the amount of loss that people were suffering and with us viewing it through the, the kind of prism of the media, a death was almost kind of like a number yes. instead of being a face. Was that the kind of the impact you took from it? That's exactly it. It, it was like there wasn't time to honor mm-hmm. the deaths or, or the life really is, is yeah. you know, or, or, you know, worse, there wasn't an opportunity for people to just even go by the bedside in the hospital of the yeah. person going through it. Um, so that, yeah, that, that sort of is what sparked it because I had some technical ideas about like what you're talking about. I think I've wanted to do a movie for a while where people are pulled out of their very existence. Mm -hmm. But, um, what really makes you go and write it is that reason that adds depth and emotional value and resonance. So Mm -hmm. once that sparked off, I was, I was on the road. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it lands. It was just a thought I had while watching it. If that was your your kind of intention, because there was so many people that, as you're saying, couldn't say bye to loved ones, and people were affected in different ways during the kind of years when it was hitting really hard. Um, another aspect of it is the kind of distinguishing between dreams and reality. Uh, the character of Monique, who's played by Gabby Beans, who's fantastic in it. Yeah. Um, in your opinion, and just kind of delving in a wee bit to Monique's kind of journey through this, do you think that she's potentially trapped a lot earlier than what we figure out? I thought that personally watching it, but that's just, like, do you know, I mean, like by... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are the very lines we're trying to blur, and, and it's all mm. about kind of taking the footing out from the audience so that (laughs) is the mode of thinking but i think in order to build in my head what would feel like a a architecturally sound story in a machine Mm -hmm. i had to as much as possible look at monique who's the symbol of hope in the story and infuse the care not only the character but my belief in the character as i even wrote the story Mm -hmm. um that she could bring that hope into a bad situation that she could be a buoyant present so i you know for me her feet were on the ground until they until they weren't yeah um and it's something that you certainly see from monique from the offset she's a very family oriented person she lives with her her brother and her dad and she also makes the really difficult decision to leave them and go and visit a friend who seems to be suffering from kind of night terrors and sleepwalking and all sorts of Serial aspects to to her daily life. Um, with Monique as the character, was it important that she, because the journey she's going to go through, that she was a positive person to kind of bounce off of, to give that, um, give the audience that sort of character to stick to? Yeah, I think so, especially in this story, because um, like it was at a time when we all felt kind of doomed. 
Mm. So like yeah. the, what I didn't want to feel was we had these two doomed uh, characters at the center mm-hmm. of the story because there, you know, there's no tension in that. And that's also not uh, what I was trying to follow. So yeah. And, and Gabby just, you know, really brought that together. Gabby mm-hmm. um, honestly was that force on our set. I mean, she is a completely steady um presence that she's she's studied everything she studied mm-hmm. everything every day and she was um she yeah she she brought hope into the situation and she had great chemistry uh with emily davis who's who's playing mavis so once yeah. i saw that juxtaposition in action i was like this was it better than my intention of course my intention was there but it's what you hope other people come in and and, and make it make mm-hmm. your work better mm-hmm yeah, she, as you said, she's great. Emily Davis is fantastic as well. Um, they kind of root the film in. It's, you're going through that journey with them, essentially, you, through the, the fear of the, the known and the unknown at times. Um, what's interesting as well, obviously, with the the two characters going through the same the same stage at different stages, sorry, the same terror at different stages, is their understanding and they're kind of there's not a what's the word I'm looking for? There's not a uh I've taken a complete blank. <laughs> there's not a kind of fight back from Monique against Mavis. She she's there as support. She's not yeah. doubting her. It's really right. important that they and they both work together to try and combat essentially what is the undefeatable. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I'm I'm constantly trying to like as a horror fan, mm. um, I try and skip over some moments that have become tropes in my head, which is like the doubting friend is like yeah. one of the biggest, you know, I, I think it's fun to uh, subvert that. I, I mm-hmm. see an audience sort of lean in when you subvert that and and go because I think a lot of movies, um, a lot of horror movies spend a lot of time breaking down their internal relationships. Yeah. Um, and I like to try and work in the other way, uh, like have faith in your main external conflict so that you can yeah. build up the love in the story rather than break it down. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that is is belief and alignment and and going with each other. And and, and so, uh, yeah, they, and then the actors really wrap their arms around that, too. Mm-hmm. That was the hope. Yeah. Yeah. What's perfectly um, just what you're saying there about kind of. Um, subverting tropes a wee bit with the harbinger and also with the, the witch in the window you seem to have a approach typical kind of genre beats but in an orthodox an unorthodox way um so there's plenty of kind of horror movies and tv shows where the monster's in the periphery and you don't really see it but you've wrapped that around a story in the harbinger of the pandemic and the relationship between uh, Mavis and Monique and then also Witching the Window is wrapped around mostly the, the kind of father and son almost bonding story is that what drives you when you're writing a movie just subverting those tropes yes using them in an effective way but not in a way that would be generally expected yeah I think it's a percentage of it is intention and another percentage mm-hmm. of it is just what happens when I write or who I, you know, a result of like who I am and, and what my influences are. And the fact that I'm, I'm kind of a weird animal that grew up loving horror. I've always been a complete horror nut and remain yeah. one, but I also then got really into theater um, and got my degree in, in theater and, you know, had a nonprofit theater company for a while in LA. And um, so the values of the theater and, and some of those, uh, 
uh, more human, I don't know, character based for lack of a better term, like the combination of those things, I think, create something sort of unique. And I like seeing those tropes through a lens of um, just more humanity. Or really, you know, what it comes down to is music for like everything is music, right? So like we know the regular rhythms, mm -hmm. um, the mainstream has provided those rhythms and they're and they're baked into our horror sensibilities. So yeah. that allows us to to play different rhythms, uh, to work, to bounce off that and to subvert those expectations and to introduce more of the rhythms maybe we recognize from our real life mm -hmm. into the, the machinations of a horror story and seeing what kind of friction comes out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it makes the, when the, the truly horrific moments happen, it adds weight to them, I feel. Yeah. Uh, it just gets that extra bump out of you, if I want a better word. Um, was there anything in particular that you watched leading up to write, or when writing this, that kind of influenced your writing for it? Was there any particular directors or genres or movies? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's always, I always bring my favourites, and, and like my favourite directors and filmmakers don't, a few of them in horror, but um, like Sidney Lumet was always at the top of that mountain for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, of course, Kubrick and Coen brothers and, and, and some of the greats, uh, always William Friedkin. Um, but for this in particular, Jacob's Ladder, uh, okay. Adrian Lyons, Jacob's Ladder was the touchstone as, as sort of like a, my favorite dreamy horror movie that really mm. has its feet in humanity. Um, and feels a little bit more down and dirty. Uh, you know, you're, you're always kind of standing on freddy krueger's shoulders working in in dreams so like that's in mind but tonally yeah. i knew we were doing a much different thing so i would say jacob slatter and the documentary um the nightmare on uh okay. sleep paralysis were, were probably right. the two things that got in here the most heavily mm -hmm. yeah i've never seen that one actually i'll definitely check that oh, it's, out it's scary is yeah. it that's yeah. the, the real life side of horror that you, yeah. <laughs> you don't want sorry i'm getting bothered by my dog here and he's about to jump up oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah so we did touch a wee bit there on the kind of reality warping as well and what the harbinger brings to that um and again you kind of have a, a section of the the reality warping and the witch in the window as well is that something that interests you as a writer because you can kind of you can play about with the laws of physics and you can change people's perception of the world and put it onto the screen. Yeah. I think it one of the purest desires, even when like of kids who want to be storytellers is like the desire to change, the, to bend the rules um, and to create worlds where the rules bend. It's also an effective way, I think, to be hardwired to a character to, mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, to, to invest in their psychological experience. Like, in the harbinger there's a sort of long game that's being played in that when we hear about mavis's nightmares we hear about them we watch her she tells us we don't go into those nightmares because she's not who we're hardwired to so yeah. i think that pays off when we finally get you know uh when, when we when we go into those nightmares with monique but it's her perspective that we share so be kind of like with witch in the window like i i like the idea that hauntings can be psychologically manifested um and, and affect what you see and and that every person given their vulnerabilities will see it differently yeah perfect way to sum it up there um and i'll just a wee wrap up before we go just again thanks very much for joining us i said love love this and love watching the window I'll check out what else you've got you can see um 
The Harbinger is out on VOD and digital download just now, which just came out yesterday in the UK. This yesterday in terms of the day recording. Um, you can also find Watch of the Window on Shudder. Um, definitely check that out for everyone, Shudder in the UK as well. Um, Andy, thanks very much for joining us and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. It's nothing but a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate the, the support and the great questions. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. What the hell's going on? Bad dreams. Sounds stupid, right? Tell me about them. It's like any dream. I can move around, but something else is making my choices. Then I get the bad feeling that he's there. Me too. I think somebody was here. I have a family. People who need me. 